on number 289. Unless there are any leftover questions or comments? I don't see any. Okay. This is a long um, one. I may read it in just parts. During the Korean War, someone asked the master, did the American soldiers fighting there get bad karma for killing? Good question. They are fulfilling their duty as soldiers, the master answered. No, they don't get bad karma for that. This is a holy war. Korean War he's talking about. The villain must be defeated, otherwise the whole world might become enslaved. He didn't mince words, does he? There was more to this story, Swami says. The master told a few of us after that war began, when South Korea was invaded from the north, I myself put the thought in, in President Truman's mind to go to its defense. The, that situation was a threat to the whole world. Had South Korea fallen, the communists would have gone on to take Japan and would then have come up and taken the Aleutian Islands from where they could have invaded Alaska and North America the whole world ultimately could have been swept up into the materialistic philosophy of communism. For these reasons, it was very necessary that South Korea be defended. That is why I have called this a holy war. I, yeah, I, I think I'm going to sneeze. I don't want to... Okay, I think it passed. Okay. I was fascinated to hear this intimation that the masters sometimes play an active role in world affairs. That means they are concerned not only with the salvation of individuals, but with the spiritual upliftment of humanity as a whole. When Hitler first rose to power, Paramahansa Yogananda, for several reasons, saw some hope in that accession. One of those reasons was the unfairness of the Versailles Treaty, which had forced Germany into virtual destitution. He also saw, as he told a few people, that Hitler had been, in a former lifetime, Alexander the Great of Greece, who had shown an interest in the yogis of India. When Hitler allowed himself to be seized by ambition for power, however, that ambition distorted his potentially spiritual leanings. At that point, several masters began to, several masters began to work against him. The masters always work within the karmic law. Thus, they don't try to change the destiny of the world, but work within the karmas of the individuals concerned. They worked, therefore, with Hitler's consciousness as it was. They were at liberty, however, to put the thought in Hitler's mind to make the mistakes that led to his eventual destruction. They suggested to him from within, for example to divide his forces and fight, both in the East and in the West, and also in Africa. This they did by feeding the confidence he felt in his own ability to win everywhere. Militarily, there was no need for Germany to divide its fronts. That self-division proved for it a fatal error. Yeah, it's an, this is an amazing reading. On the subject of the former incarnations of a few world leaders, it is interesting to note that the master said Mussolini was Mark Anthony of ancient Rome, Stalin was Genghis Khan, the scourge of Asia, 
and Winston Churchill was Napoleon. I once asked him who was Roosevelt. Master answered, I've never told anybody. After a brief pause, he added, I was afraid I might get into trouble. <clears throat> of Napoleon, he said, he wanted to destroy England. As Churchill, he has had to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire. The divine purpose behind the Second World War was to liberate the Third World countries, most of which were British colonies. Again, Napoleon was sent into temporary exile on the island of Elba. Later, he returned to power. Churchill, similarly, was sent out of politics, and now he's back again in power. At the time, this was... Um, let's start, just start at the beginning. You know, he starts at the very beginning with the question, is, it, is there ever a time when killing is, is not unrighteous? I mean, it's, it's a, that, that in itself is a very important question because I remember um, a certain point when I, this was like 30 years ago before we were established here, and I was traveling mostly on the West Coast. We didn't really have branch centers then, and I was just, traveling around, and I, I was often sponsored in unity churches, which were more popular and bigger then. And I remember being in Oregon with a certain unity minister whose name I don't remember who he was now. I don't remember his name. And he was involved in some uh, anti-war movement. It was long past the Vietnam War, so it was more just, he was just generally opposed. He, he, it was part of just a general thing. He assumed that I would just be on his side, you know, sort of like because if we had similar spiritual points of view, we would have similar everything point of view. And I, I mean, I had to say to him, look, for some people, the willingness to sacrifice their life for a cause they believe in is progress. I can't stand against that. I couldn't say that no one should join the army and the army should be dissolved because for some people, being soldiers is good. I can't campaign against it. It disciplines them. It gives them a, an identity greater than their own. It gives them values that they believe in. And in the particular planet at this time, sometimes there are people who are violent and violence has to be contained. Master talked about, you know, a, an actual global police force that would keep um, bullies um, under control. I mean, the... United Nations has not proved to be that, but the idea of it is a valid one because they're, on, on this stage of development on the planet, they're just people who try to get power by whatever means they can do it. So Amaji said that a group of uh, pacifists once commissioned a study and they wanted to find historic examples of countries that disarmed so that they could advocate disarmament. And every single country that ever disarmed was overrun by, violent, by violence and simply ceased to exist, apparently. That's what history proves. It's just not the time when the world is sattvic enough for that to happen. So that's the first part of it. Is it ever right? And he said, no, they don't, they don't even get bad karma if they believe in what they're doing. You know, it's, because you have to realize that it depends on where you're standing on the scale, if you go through the, the four casts, um, the, the spiritual value of the four casts, not the social condition of it, the, the point at which you believe in something more than yourself is progress. And, and you, 
then you get into a higher reality where it would be, you would be going backward to be a soldier. But if it's a holy war and it's a righteous cause, Swami himself said when the Second World War came, he was, he was exactly soldier age at that point. And it was a, a dilemma for him because he knew he could never kill anyone. It just, he just simply couldn't do it. But he was disqualified because he had a heart murmur, which he didn't... He know, I think he found out he had a heart murmur at that point, and also his eyesight was bad. But it, it, the decision was taken out of his hands by the grace of God because he really didn't know what he would do. Even if it was a holy war, it wasn't his war. And that, that wasn't his job. There's a, a story, it's in this book, of two men who came to Master in 1935 when he was in India, or no, before that, before he left India. They wanted him to lead a, a violent revolution against the British. And they had a plan, they were going to steal armaments and they were going to rise up against the British. And Master said no, he wouldn't participate. And he said to them that India would be liberated, you know, in, in their lifetime, his lifetime, but by nonviolent means. But he, he didn't dissuade the men from doing what they were doing. They tried to steal armaments, were arrested, and eventually executed. And Swami asked him, why didn't you try to stop them? Master said, well, it was their karma. And he didn't say even it was their bad karma. Maybe it was just their karma to sacrifice themselves. Who knows? It's very hard to say. It's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as life or death. It's, it's gradations of directions. But that's, it's reassuring because many soldiers come back and are very worried about what they've done. Um, nowadays things are pretty tough. But then you go on to this whole thing that Master says there about... To master, the communists were a tremendous, a tremendous threat because it, it was, is an entirely materialistic philosophy where the human being doesn't matter and the, the individual human has no value and the only value is the mass and the lowest common denominator is valued in intellectuality and art and so on is not valued, just the worker. I mean, this is all the theory, because in practice it's power against power and, and people get in positions and they become as uh, luxury-oriented as anyone. It's all a complete fake in truth. But the fundamental factor about it is, is that it's godless. And everything is possible because once there's no greater reality, and you can do anything you want. It's just power against power. You can have whatever you want. And uh, Master considered communism to be an enormous threat. And that's what he states here. That he, and you just think about that. He put it into the mind of Harry Truman to go to war in Korea. I read a, a very interesting biography of Harry Truman when I was in my writing seclusion because I read historical biography. Since I was writing a historical biography, <laughs> I realized that it was the same thing I was trying to do. So that's what, I, that's what my dinner table reading was. But it was so interesting to me when I came to the part where Harry Truman decided to go to war in Korea. I was looking for any sign that he, that he heard the voice of God or anything like that. Interestingly, it was part of Harry Truman's temperament. Um, but he, he didn't second guess himself when he made decisions. He just made them and he just didn't look back. Which of course would be if you felt it as an inner inspiration. 
But the, the part he talks about, and he talks about it more when he gets to Hitler, how the masters work within the karma of the individuals who are there and influence them in the, in the directions in which they can be influenced. And, you know, it's not exactly the same, but it's not different either. When we were in the midst of being sued by Self-Realization Fellowship, which it was a theological dispute, but to get it into the courts, because there's no religious courts, there's only secular courts, to get it into the court, it was copyright, trademark, and my favorite, the publicity rights to a deceased personality, (laughs) which is actually called the um, Bela Lugosi Law. Bela Lugosi was an, an actor who played Dracula and became famous for playing Dracula. And then after Bela Lugosi, whoever he was, died, all his relatives were fighting over the publicity rights, who, who got to own the character Dracula, because there was a lot of money in it. So it became known as the Bela Lugosi Law. <laughs> who gets the publicity rights to a deceased personality? It amused us that, that that's what we were dealing with. You know, was it Yogananda or was it Dracula? I mean, it was just... It epitomized, it epitomized the insane absurdity of the whole situation. But we're in this where SRF is accusing us of copyright violation, which is a really big, it's a big deal. Intellectual property, all this sort of thing. Let me think how this works. Let me say the part that I want to say. Our lawyer, John Parsons, who became quite devoted to Master, even though he never, um, he, he didn't formalize that relationship, but over his, his 12 years of, or 20 years now of working with us, um, he's really become quite en- enmeshed in Master's life. But he just was thinking about the case, and it, as he put it, it popped into his head that the way to defend ourselves against copyright infringement was to challenge the validity of their copyrights. It just crossed his mind, which is, how did they get the copyrights? How did SRF get copyrights? And he just had that inspiration. And we went to Washington, D.C. and researched it and realized that most of Master's original writings had gone into the public domain and the few that actually there were copyrights on had been fraudulently obtained. And that just, it, it never crossed our minds. They claimed to have the copyrights. We just accepted it. Everyone accepted it. But, but so, uh, John always said later, he, he just had no doubt, he said, Master, put the thought in my mind. He said, I was just going along, and then there was that idea, and it just was in his head, and it seemed like such an obvious idea, and it really saved our case. It just took us all the way through. And in the very end, just to finish that story, we were judged guilty of violating the copyrights because Shivani had Xerox and sold something that was marked copyrighted, but it was, there's a, a, a clause in the law that's called fair use. So even if somebody else owned the copyright, if what you did was fair, and in our case, this was our scripture, and we had no access to it. And this gave us access to it. And there was no monetary loss to SRF because they were neither selling the magazines nor the book. So in that case, because as soon as the book came out, we stopped. We never competed. In fact, we stopped long before it. But anyway, so we were guilty but not guilty. Um... But the end of all of that is we do not know how many times these ideas just pop into our head because where do ideas come from? I mean, that's what attunement is for a devotee. 
is that you're just going along and then you have an idea of how to do it. And it's because we're on the wavelength of the masters. If you're a creative artist or if you do anything creative or, or just if you work creatively, that doesn't mean that your work is e anything other than mundane. You will just find that ideas are coming to you all the time. So in some way or another, the masters were able to start working with Truman to get him going in that respect. And in fact, there's a, a paragraph in, in a letter that Master wrote to Kamala Silva during this period of time, during the Korean War. And he, it's just a paragraph. And he says something to the effect of, I'm sorry I haven't written you recently. Divine, ever since the Korean War started, Divine Mother has kept me very busy working on it. And I, when I wrote that to Swami, he was still living when I read that, I said, working on it? Like, what was he doing? I don't know. Swami didn't give me an answer, but what was he doing? And then later in this thing, two, two masters start working with, is that what it says? What was the exact words? The masters, let's see. At that point, several masters began to work against him. So at the point that Hitler was showing that he was going to be evil for the world, several, ma like, were they assigned? Like, who assigned them? Did they just feel it? Did they have a past relationship with him from when he was Alexander the Great? Because there's that story in Autobiography of a Yogi about Alexander meeting that yogi, and that yogi saying, you know, I'll be with you later when you, and when you die, and he was. So are these masters responsible for this man, and now he's just messed up one more time, and they're going to try to help him out of this? I mean, all of these are not explained, but are very reasonable lines that you could draw. When Apparently, when Master, he doesn't mention this here, but apparently when Master went to India in 1935, he went through Europe, and Swami said, or I've been told, that Master tried to see Hitler. Because, as it was put, was it wasn't clear yet which way Hitler was going to go. And he, he wanted to meet him and see if he could reawaken in him his old interest in yoga. That was how it was put. And so perhaps then bring him to, to use the obvious power he had for the light. But instead, Hitler became enamored of power. And when his ambition and his power began to lead him astray, then several of the masters began to work against him. If you, if you just take away the limiting factor of time and space, and just imagine that these people who are responsible for the fate of the world, or for the fate of this particular soul, are not inhibited by being in the Himalayas when this man is in Europe, um, then they can just work together. Because the influence of a guru, even if the guru is living in the body somewhere, it, it comes intuitively. Even if you're in the same room, the real influence is not, now you should do this, and then after that you should do that. It's just the, the vibrations that come. At a certain point, I don't remember what was going on at Ananda, but whatever it was, it was causing a, a kerfuffle of some sort. I, it might have been some action on Swami's part that was causing a kerfuffle. And there was this big kerfuffle going on. And Swami was working to try to 
help us to understand what was happening. And I remember vividly, there was a, a small group of us, and for some reason, we were lined up more or less in one line. That's how I always have the picture. We were like little birds on a, a wire for some reason. And he, I just remember him standing in front of us and looking at us and saying, you have it so much easier than I did. He said, and his words were, I bend over backwards trying to explain things to you. He said, Master never bothered. He said, Master, it would be a glance, maybe a couple of words, and then he would just leave it to you to, to be able to grasp his meaning intuitively. He said, and I just explain and explain and explain, and we're still you know, not quite getting what he's saying. <laughs> he was just really wanting us to appreciate uh, you know, his efforts on our part. But the point being, we think, you know, if, we're, if, we, if I only was able to live with Yogananda, he would have sat me down and explained to me everything I should do. Not at all. He was, he was quite enigmatic, Mount Swami said. And you, just, you had to just pick it up. And if you've ever spent any time around anyone who has that, any kind of energy like that, you just realize, you're, you just pick it up. You, you, I mean, I got... I wasn't, I, I wasn't, you know, outstanding by any means. When I read Narayani's book, I realize how much I missed. But nonetheless, you, I could just tell, you know, if, if I was wrong <laughs> or, I, or if he had something else to say. or You just, you can feel it. But you can feel it by attunement anyway. And so somehow these masters had the capacity... To, to go inside of Hitler's mind and try to mold him. But the other part of it that I wanted to say was, you know, working f- from within him. And you have to realize that's not the same as imposing their will on him because he would only respond to what he was inclined to respond to. But they also, you, could, you can again just imagine it, he, he became more and more arrogant, more and more persuaded that he was invincible and made, began to make and did make you know, just really foolish mistakes in this conduct of the war. Swami had talked about, I'm not a student of history, but he divided his forces. And when he divided his forces, it was possible to defeat him. And what is mentioned here is there was no need for him to do that. He, didn't, he could have just continued to win. And in fact, elsewhere it's said that he was that the, the masters had to persuade him because he was just too powerful, and his dark force was was overcoming the light. But his his Achilles' heel was his arrogance, and so they could flatter him, feed him the thoughts which he would then accept. Because think about it, all of us, you you kind of feel thoughts in the air, and you'll accept it. Sometimes you you get sucked into a thought that after a little while you realize this isn't a good thought and then you'll pull back from it and go try to find another one? Like, where are they all coming from? I mean, and it really is. Sometimes you feel like God is suggesting one thing to you and Satan is suggesting another. And apparently they are. You know, our guardian angels, our guru, the masters themselves, none of us hold the fate of the world in our hands, but we hold the fate of... of our souls in our hands. But then Swami adds this other thing about the extent to which the masters are participating in world events, which I find exceedingly comforting since world events appear to be such a random assortment of selfishness meeting other selfishness, except that all these people seem to have power. 
What a weird world we live in. It's just the yuga. It's the yuga we're living in. I was uh, reminded of something today that is, has been one of my more useful uh, recollections. I believe I read this in a book by a, a Swami of the Ramakrishna order. I think it was just like a, a line or two in the introduction to a biography that I was reading that was written by one of those swamis. And they explained the nature of the world in a way that has always worked for me. When you're depending on where you are in the yuga cycle, depends how enlightened the planet can be. And what that means is that there is a, a point of equilibrium between light and dark that, that is the vibration of whatever point in the yuga cycle that you're in. And of course, in the higher yuga cycle, it's tipped over. You know, there's more light than dark. And at the highest level, it's, it seems to be apparently very, very light. Swami said about Satya Yuga, um, when I suggested next time, if he waited till Satya Yuga, we would be grateful before he incarnated again. He said, it, first he said, it's still the material plane. He said, but I love this, but people like us are in charge. I thought that, I said, so the whole world is like Ananda. He said, yeah. I mean, just if, if the whole world, if people like us were in charge with our values and our way of doing things, just how, the whole, how different the whole world would be. It seems so self-evident, doesn't it? Why aren't people like us in the White House? Why aren't people like us, you know, running Russia? It's just like, why not? Because at this point in the yuga cycle, the equilibrium between light and darkness is, is the percentage that it is. And so therefore, only so much light can come up before, the, before darkness has to reassert itself. And it's just this constant battle. And we're in an ascending age, so therefore the long-term picture is that the, the equilibrium point will be increasingly light. But this is still the material plane. And there's just no reason in the world except our sort of naive kind of happy ending idea that somehow eventually they'll all listen to us and the world will be like us. But the equilibrium point is not there. That doesn't mean that this enormous circle of light can't continue to exist and can't continue to draw more souls into it. As we're, because we're going into Dwapara Yuga, our church is on El Camino. It, when it was Kali Yuga descending, we just went out into the desert. We didn't, we didn't go where the population was. We got as far away from that society as we could. I mean, people who were dedicated to God, that's what the followers of Jesus did. They didn't set up temples on the main streets because the barbarians were coming. And the barbarians swept through in 500 AD at the nadir of the thing, and they just destroyed everything. What would be the point in all that time trying to build anything because the barbarians were coming to destroy it, literally? Just, you know, just literally, just wiping it all out. And the, the light balance was just way out there, way far away, hidden behind stone walls, hidden in caves, way out in deserts. But now, because it's going the way it's going, we're on El Camino. You know, which is like, this is the good news and this is the bad news. You know, we're, we're compelled to build something because it will last. I mean, it will be increasingly respected instead of less respected. Of course, Christianity, you know, came out of that, but it had to, it had to hide itself away before it could, it could come up the other side. So, 
um, let, no, let's see the, what this is all about, what I was trying to say. So there's, there are these two realities that are always going on. <clears throat> that was it. <clears throat> the yuga cycle is a phenomenon of the planet in which the light and dark equilibrium is there. It's a physical phenomenon in relation to where the planet is compared to the central force of the galaxy. It's a material world reality, the yugas are, caused by material things. But it creates a certain world in which individual souls get to incarnate to act out their little stories and to play out our little karmic things. And in this particular case, we all came with Swami. He came with Master. We followed behind with him because it's Dwapara Yuga rising and we need to start building something. We have a job. This is how we serve the Guru. But the Guru comes because he has this responsibility for the planet. He has this interest in the planet. That's what Swami comments on here. He found this so interesting that the Masters are not indifferent to what's going on. They're actually pushing on it and, and helping to move it in the direction they want it to go. Babaji and Jesus are concerned about the race hatred and the wars and the materialism and have together planned the salvation. It's a, it's a fascinating statement. It's right there in the autobiography that the two of them are, have a plan. And, and that plan is for the planet to provide the environment for individual souls to have their experience. But the planet matters. What happens on the planet matters. But not on the level of you know, you must stop doing this, you have to do that, you know, just not on the level of I'm going to make it the way I want it to be, but on the level of keeping that equilibrium, um, giving us the opportunity to act out their karma, I'm not exactly sure what it is. Giving the people the chance to face into the communist threat and have the courage to stand up against it, to have the discrimination to perceive it for what it really is, you know, to understand the battle between materialism and devotion to God. You just, these are all the, the, the necessary conditions. I've been reading about Fernando, who was master um, in Spain. All right, are you, are you all thinking about that? Are you going to Spain? I know that, are you going to go to Spain? Mancha Davis' account of it, all about it. But I've been reading about Fernando, just this book that, I, I can't really recommend, but it's, it's entertaining. It's, and not, and it's more than entertaining. It's very interesting. Apparently, I heard the, the phrase from Kavita that uh, Fernando was at war for 38 years. And basically, this book is just, and then he went and fought over here, and then he went and fought over here, and then he went and fought over here. And, and interspersed with, you know, St. James and his white knights appearing in the heavens, and then the... the you know, the small outnumbered group of Christians were able to triumph over the thousands, just over, there's no reason to say it isn't true. I mean, it's very, but Master incarnated as a Spanish king to push the Moors out of the continent of Europe. And Swami incarnated as his son to finish the job. Master spent his entire life, that entire lifetime, at war trying to save Spain for Catholicism. Fascinating. It was that important. That's what you have to realize. It was that important that Master and Swami would spend a whole incarnation doing it, each of them doing it. Yeah. It, it, and we, we have a wholly different attitude, an entirely different attitude toward those things, 
But it was important that the, the teaching of Jesus be preserved in the country of Spain. What that also does, and what does a, a lot of things for your brain after you get it off of tilt, you know, but it also, at least me, it makes me step way, way back from what you might call, you know, politics in the way people think about it. You know, just this little, it has to be like this, it has to be like that, these are the bad guys, these are the good guys, my policies are the right policies, whatever it might be. It's like this is, there's something so completely other going on and you can't just, you can't be a shallow thinker if you're going to be a self-realizationist and you can't just be, the word is sentimental about anything. You know, you can't just be, I'm a liberal, these are my politics. You know, this is what I believe. Why doesn't the government do this? I like this one. I don't like that one. You have to really stand back and think about things that Master said and think about things that Swami said and really just see it from a wholly different level. Um, at least for me, I've had to really work with that because the implications are just too mind-bending otherwise. Um, Okay, now let me think about the other parts of that were. Oh, and then just when he goes into the reincarnations of all these people. I actually just did a little of the math. I was just curious. Um, Churchill reincarnated. Churchill's reincarnation was approximately 50 years after Napoleon died. That was really close, right? Um, Mussolini ruled Italy about 70 BC. <laughs> He, his, his, that incarnation is Mark Anthony when he was the ruler of Italy. That's what he did. And then he came back 2,000 years later, you know, 19, 1,900 years later to rule Italy again. The other part of it you think is, do, does it ever stop? <laughs> like, like, how long? But you can, now if you think about it, and I, I read just, you know, the little tiny bit about Mark Anthony because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually totally uneducated except for matters relating to Master's teachings. But he was a dictator and he had other dictators and they were all killing each other and killing other people so that they could have absolute power, which they all managed to do for a period of time until it all went south on them because they were fighting with each other. But think how much force you know, such a person would have to direct and how many lifetimes he would have to work to get strong enough and good enough to be able to do that. Because, you know, that's, it's, it's no ordinary person. I've never met politicians. I've never been any place. But one of our friends, a man who used to live here, Dharmaraj, who now lives in Chennai, one of our members' parties where we were doing You Did What?, where we were just telling old stories. His story was about meeting Bill Clinton over at uh, Stanford when he was a Stanford student. Bill Clinton, I'm pretty sure it was Clinton. I think, I think that's who it was, but it was a very well-known politician. And Dharmaraj, he had all these various things. The details escaped me. But this is what he said. When he stood in front of the man, he said everything else went out of his mind because he had so much magnetism. And he, Dharmaraj was just a... a you know, an under, Stanford undergraduate. He wasn't even a Stanford undergraduate. Yeah. MIT, that, or, or, or Penn State, or wherever he actually was, right. But wherever he was, the point of it was, he stood in front of Bill Clinton, and the magnetism nearly knocked him off his feet. 
And Clinton was doing nothing except just shaking the hand of a, of a college undergraduate. He wasn't, he wasn't even trying. Okay? And it was just such a, a notable force field that the man had. So, I mean, we don't have force fields like that. How do you get such a force field? By setting your mind to a goal and lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, building yourself up to the point where you can become the dictator of Italy. You don't get to do that so quickly. So he did it, and then the story of Mark Anthony is after these people killed the other people, and then they fought among themselves, and he had Cleopatra in Egypt, and he ends up, he and Cleopatra committed suicide in the end because they were taken out of power. He lost his whole position. Now, do you think he died content? <laughs> you know, he would obviously die with this tremendous you know, unresolved determination, which has brought him all the way back to the same country to rule it again. I mean, just, oh my God, do we ever get free? You know, just think about it. And then you have Churchill, who just, he was, and the, the irony, I love the story about Churchill. It's just always so interesting. Churchill, as Napoleon, was determined to conquer England, he really wanted to take it over, so he gets it, he finally gets power over England, and then England disintegrates around him, because, you know, because it never works. <laughs> I mean, and, he, and because he, you know, as a Frenchman, Napoleon hated the British, and he was out to conquer and destroy them. So it just, it's like, you get what you want, but it's a little goofy when you get it. So he was so set on being able to just take the British down, and he was, what can you say? I'm just going to make it up. He was obsessed with the British, so he finally gets his hands on Britain. But now he's an Englishman, but all that force of wanting to disintegrate the whole thing is still there. So it disintegrates around him, which is, is far more subtle than just not getting what you want. It's, you see, it's far more subtle. The man who had the vision of being Master's disciple in Lemuria 80,000 years ago, Swami says to Master, you know, was, have I been your disciple for a long time? You know, does it always take that long? Oh yes, Master said. Desire for this thing or that thing takes you away again and again. And we just have to exhale on this whole story. It's much more complicated than we think. You know, what, whatever lies in our hearts, we just, we have no idea what's in our hearts. You just have, you really do your best and you have to surrender it. You just don't know what layer upon layer upon layer. I was, I remember... I was raised in, in my household, I was raised in a very nice home, but we were not very materialistic. It just wasn't a value. My mother a little more than my father, but my father particularly, it just, we didn't spend money on things just to have something beautiful. My mother had a collection of crystal, and after she died, I discovered this china up in the shelf that I never, ever remember seeing. But we just were plain people. And I was at someone's house at Ananda village and she served me tea in a fine china cup and I had just never I had never drunk tea out of a fine china cup I never went to fancy restaurants or and hotels or anything and I just remember picking up this very delicate beautiful cup and I went like this and I remember the way it felt on my lips you know it was really delicate and really smooth mm. and I thought and I said out loud oh I see why people like these sorts of things because it had never been part of my world. Oh, I see. And Swami looked at me and said, be careful. 
yeah. <laughs> he said, anyone who's a yogi now has been very wealthy in the past. He said, be careful. Those desires can start up again. You know, it's this, it's, and you could see, not, it didn't happen to me because it wasn't my karma. But you could see how, oh, a china cup. Oh, a beautiful silk dress. Oh, look at that nice upholstery. That wonderful painting. I could have all those things again, couldn't I? And then you just, whoosh, you're just down that road one more time. You know, it, it, for me it was, you know, I just <laughs> put the cup down. <laughs> because my delusions are different. Let's just say it like that. My, the equilibrium of my delusions is just the same, but it just wasn't for the China cup. <laughs> That's all. But it's, and the, so here you have these guys, and you have to realize, I mean, Hitler himself had interest in yoga, um, at least when he was Alexander the Great, he did. But um, they have they have power, and all power comes from the same source. I mean, all power is the is the capacity to expand your magnetism to be able to enforce your will to do what you want, even if the power is evil. It's still the same power, and these people have developed a, a, a tremendous amount of self-mastery, which they are now directing t- toward an evil cause, but that power is still in them, so that when they become enlightened in their direction, they may be much farther ahead than a person who appears to be much, much, more, um, much, much more spiritual, but is spiritual with such a tiny bit of energy that they have this huge thing that they're going to have to go through uh, to, to reach the point that this one has over here who's evil. So it's, in other words, there, there's a certain level of, high, a certain high level of evolution, that's what I'm trying to say. That's why Master was interested in talking to Hitler, because there was power there if it could be directed for good. But uh, alas, it wasn't, and so that's what happened to him. Yeah. Did I say that no, Stalin was Gen- Gen- Genghis Khan? Okay. Right. What about, uh, maybe you've mentioned it before too, but how does the Holocaust fit in with, with Hitler? And uh, you said, Master said that the, the Second World War was because of, uh, to get rid of uh, colonies. The, the so Second how World the War was to liberate a lot of the, those countries that were being held by the British. I mean, you know, the... The destruction of the British Empire was one of the purposes of the Second World War, Churchill's karma acting itself out. About the Holocaust, about what happened to the Jews, um, so, uh, let's see, well, Swami just said, it, you know, this is the distinction that Master made, I'm sure you'll, most of you have heard this, that, that Hitler was not personally responsible for much of what happened, that it was the karma of the German people and the Jewish people. And he was an instrument of that karma, but he wasn't, he wasn't personally responsible. And this, he said that in distinction from Stalin, who he said was personally responsible for what he did. He just, what, how that exactly works out karmically, it was going to happen in Germany and Hitler was there. But Stalin personally is responsible for the Holocaust that he carried out and the millions of people that he killed. And he will personally suffer that karma. Whereas Hitler 
won't suffer it personally because he was just there when it happened. Now, how that sorts itself out is a perspective way beyond me, but it was just an interesting statement, you know, just to... German people then uh, had that... Uh, the bad feelings about the Jews, and that just accelerated. And and, and uh, uh, Hitler was an instrument for doing right. that. And but you know there are many other countries involved besides Germany, and anti-Semitism has been a big story for a long, long time. And it was a, you know, at the end of it, the Jewish people got Israel. It's it's all very, and you know you have to stand back for a minute, because even though there is a theology in Judaism that there is such a thing as a Jewish soul, it's not a part of Sanatan Dharma that there is such a thing as a Jewish soul. So I just have to contradict that. You're a Jew today, you're a Christian tomorrow, you're a Muslim the week after, you're an atheist after that, and then you're a Parsi and after that Zoroastrian, and then you get to be a Buddhist, you know, and then you get to be a pagan. I mean, you just go through all those stories. So it's not like there's any, there's no identifiable Jew who did it, or identifiable German or um, Czech person or Pole, Polish person. There's no, no such thing. These are vibrations that are held that have a certain quality so that a soul in the astral world that needs those vibrations in order to have the karmic experience that that soul needs steps in to that reality. Oh, I think I'll be a persecuted minority that's going to face a holocaust. I think I'll be an aggressive, sadistic guard because I really want to find out the pleasure of hurting people. So I get to do this and you get to do that and we all get to find out what we didn't know, hopefully, or we, or we get the retribution for when we were on the other side of the equation. And it's, karma is real scary. I mean, when you have to just be that impersonal, it just totally freaks a person out. But it's either always true or it's never true. It can't be just sometimes true. So it always has to be fair and it always has to be appropriate and it always has to be for the benefit of the soul. Which it causes a lot of people to not go on the spiritual path. They just, you know, they just can't do it. It's just too freaky. You don't know what to say. But, but the other part of it you have to put into it is a hard life is not a punishment. A hard life may be a reward. A hard life may be your final chance. A hard life may be give me all my karma in one lifetime so I can just wipe it off. You know, I want the biggest challenge I can get. It all depends on what you do with it. And, and you, you go where you need to go. And so that's why the master's interest in the world just changes everything, doesn't it? And, and well, it's just a whole bunch of stuff. All right, let's pause for a minute. Okay, <laughs> let's take a break. <laughs> but we, what we were talking about, for the sake of the recording, I'll say just before we turn the camera back on, um, fake news and the degree to which people in Silicon Valley, where we are, are trying to develop, you know, trying to develop a way that people can depend on what they're reading to be true. I, I, I made the joking comment, they're trying to figure out a way to ensure integrity, which is... It's it, true. No, it's, it is true, but you see, all the problems come down to a matter of consciousness. Yeah. 
which is why I'm in the business that I'm in, because every other solution is going to eventually break down unless there is a change in consciousness, which of course we are coming into a change of consciousness, which is the Dwapar Yuga thing, which is really helpful. Right now people are motivated by money, which is not a bad motivation. I mean, because it causes people to be very creative and the, the most successful entrepreneurs, it's the creativity that they love. If, if your goal is only money, you're generally not as good at what you're doing as if your goal is something else, even just the, the project and the fun of the project. But all of these, when you talk about Uber and you know China taking the concept and so on, it's, it's like this exclusive possession of things. It's, it's just the whole globalization. It just, who owns it? I mean, Ananda itself has faced this a little bit because um, I live in Palo Alto and for a little while, what happened in Palo Alto stayed in Palo Alto, you know? I mean, it was like, it was our project and we could do it here. And so, but now anybody anywhere in the world who's teaching anything for Ananda, anybody in the world can access it. So it's like none, none of us... I, I'm not, not quite saying it as clearly as I need to, but we all are on the same page and we're all just equal because of the globalization of things. You can't just own any aspect of it. You can't develop your own course and then expect to be able to keep it because somebody in Nigeria is going to listen to it and he's going to give it to someone else. And it's just as soon as it's on the internet, it's, it's all exclusivity, no matter how hard they try. It's just gone. It's just a whole other world. Are you familiar with the idea of open source software? I know that the concept means that anybody can have it. It's been a, I don't know, a trend that's an increasing trend over the last couple of decades where um, open source means that the development of software um, happens by the community for free so that anybody can basically like look under the hood and see what's there and make whereas it before it was a secret as right. far as, and um it's, it's happening a lot especially with computer programming well what's so interesting about it all is that people still have to live and you know people still have to earn money it's still a planet where people have to earn money so that's what it's just it's it's interesting if you it's it's the same as this discussion it's like you have to stand back and ask what's really going on here and how many of the old systems are we going to be able to hold uber just walked right in and just made a hash of a car ownership in the taxi business. They just wandered in and just out with an idea. And Air, the Airbnb, look what they've done. I read about those guys. The Airbnb were two guys in San Francisco, maybe you all know this, and they couldn't pay the rent that month. And there was, like, they were design students from someone. There was a design convention, and the hotels were expensive, and they literally blew up an air mattress and rented space on their floor to their friends who were coming into town, and it was an Airbnb. And then, and then, and then what happened? This, I'm, this is a summary of it. They, they had this idea, but everyone said it wouldn't work. No one will let strangers into their home. They were just told no one will let strangers into their home. It's a, it's a bad idea. But they thought it was a good idea, but nobody believed them. So they were trying to float th- this part of it, and then they decided they decide they to finance the B and B. They concentrated on the other B, which was breakfast, bed and breakfast. And it was during oh, the Obama McCain. Is that who it was? They made breakfast cereal. They made Obama breakfast cereal, 
and McCain breakfast cereal. They were designers and they made these really delightful, charming political boxes and they went out and sold cereal and that gave them enough money <laughs> to be able to launch this thing. But you see how the creativity just spins and spins and you start having fun and you just, something that wasn't there is suddenly there. And, and I mean, in, it go, to, let's go back to Hitler and communism and Mussolini and all of the politics that we're facing now. The masters are involved in this. And they're, I mean, we're not at war right now, so it's not being a political, well, we're not exactly at war. But, you know, it's not a question of dividing the fronts. But we've got a lot of people, we have a lot of people out there, I mean, on the planet with us right now, who have, are also having some very unattractive opportunities, unattractive to the perpetuation of human life. People with real power, and I don't mean political power, but power, people who have karmic power, who, who are being allowed to incarnate at this time because they, they're going to get their chance to, to try. And, and many odd things are going to happen. But as long as, this, as long as there's creative innovation, there'll be a response to everything that happens. And because we're going up, those responses will gradually lift. I, I, um, I've been, I worry, I have worried, you know, what will happen if, when, things get really catastrophic. But I love being, being here is like, not the safest place in the world because this would be a place that would somebody would want to attack or take over and there's so many people and how long will it take before the Safeway shelves are empty? I mean, it's just you just think about that. It's just so, it'll just vaporize really fast. But the other side of it is people here are so creative. You know, how long is anybody in this area going to sit in unfortunate conditions without beginning to make those conditions better. It's, it's just the way it's going to work. So that's really the, the power, is the magnetism and the creativity, the courage, the expectation that whatever's going to happen is in God's hands. Several of the masters began to work against Hitler. You know, how many of them are working against, and I'm not even sure at times who they should be working for or against, <laughs> but you know, they know who they're supposed to help. But maybe it has to be pushed worse before it gets better. You know, things are allowed to happen because every, everyone is a child of God. As Babaji answered Swamiji once when Swami was asking him, why are you letting these evil people have power over me during those litigation years? Why are you using these horrible people? You know, if you want to destroy my work, go ahead. But why are you letting... These really scummy people do it. These were the lawyers we were working that were working against us. And Babaji spoke to Swami how he felt, and Babaji said, "They are all my children." And that is really something that you have to think about, because you know Hitler is as dear to God as Mother Teresa. It's just that Mother Teresa is at this stage of evolution, and her forward thing looks like this. And Hitler was at that stage of evolution, and his forward looks like this. But God is just as happy to help Hitler achieve God-realization as he is to help Mother Teresa. And that's where sentiment confuses us. Because, you know, we're just so much more inclined to like Mother Teresa. And she's certainly a much better example for us than Hitler. But Divine Mother is completely equal toward all her children. 
It just, it just cracks all of our prejudices. And, and that's the attitude of the saints. They just see everyone the same. They don't see, they're not stupid. You know, it's not like Hitler is as nice as Mother Teresa. They're not stupid. And Hitler may have to be severely punished for his bad behavior. But that's different than being less dear to God. Because the con- actions have consequences. And, you know, he made some very poor judgments. <laughs> and those have consequences, yes. It's, I guess I have a joke, like, can a company have karma too? Mm-hmm. Um, and Absolutely. It's really interesting thinking about Facebook, mm-hmm. um, especially after we're talking about the path of these dictators. Because if you look at Facebook, they didn't necessarily have bad intentions, but essentially it was to get as many people on the social media platform um, to get addicted to using it, right? Through likes and posting pictures and all that. Um, but what's happened in the last year, literally, um, is is there's been research coming out that shows people are more stressed and have more anxiety and depression, generally speaking, using Facebook. And they've shifted, they've had to learn, they've had to shift their strategy. And now they're being more proactive about turning that time that people spend on their site to meaningful time, um, which means less time, which is actually bad for business. So in a way that they've, they've learned a lesson. Well, see, um, this is, what you're talking about is the, the unfortunate dual nature of this world, which is you start out with a certain intention, and then the, the, the momentum of your own actions takes you to a certain point, and you cannot make it perfect in this world. And so you, you try to adjust it a little bit. I mean, because that's really what you're saying. Because it's just one example. You, it, and that is what eventually brings you to the spiritual path. Because you've tried it. And I mean, I'll, my own tiny little life, you know, I, I was a little early chronologically. I mean, I was, you know, I came of age at the end of the 60s, really, was when I started my own life. But karmically, and this, this is, I'm using it as an example because it's what it feels like, I had the potential to do anything. By no means was I a star in, in anything. But I had the potential. I knew it. I, if I, I could be a college professor, I could be a lawyer, I could be a doctor. Being an entrepreneur wasn't an option at that time. It wasn't in my background, but... I knew I could do it, and I remember just standing there at like the age of, of 16, 17, and 18, and just, it was like I could see, I could see it. I could see the whole lifetime, I would do it, I would end up there, and at the end of the lifetime, it would, I would have nothing in my hands or nothing in my heart. And it was, I was paralyzed. It was a terrifying situation, because I just, I knew every one of them was a dead end. Not horrible and it wasn't it wasn't a dead end because it would end in disaster it was a dead end because it would end in success that was the that was the part that was so frightening it was success was to me somehow was the given but but i knew that that success would be a disaster and no one around me had an option and and i so i just i was kind of just paralyzed not kind of i was paralyzed and that's why when I met Swami Kriyananda, it took me four seconds. You know, it was just like, or when I got my first book on self-realization, it took me as long as it took me to read a few pages. 
because it was a lifeline. So the founders of Facebook, the entrepreneurs in this age, the, the public servants, the selfless, altruistic people, the selfish people, all of them, everybody just has to run that story. You have to run that story over and over and over. And what's even more about the whole thing is that you eventually have to succeed at it because if you fail, you will imagine that it would make you feel better if you succeeded. So you, you rarely give up at, because you fail. Because when you fail, you have to keep trying. Because it's only when you're holding the success in your hand that you can actually measure how much it's going to give you. And there's no point, and the Gita talks about that, there's no point in just saying none of it is worthwhile because inaction is also an action. <laughs> because if the karma is pushing you, you do not get out of it by suppressing it. And if the karma is pushing you, you have to run it and you just do it as well as you can and then you learn the lesson at the end of it. You know Bill Gates with all his money as far as I can see. I mean, he's just trying to really spend it in ways that he can see will really help the world. And his concept of helping the world, which is, which is very noble, you know, it's like, okay, now I have all this money. Other people who have all that money, it hasn't even occurred to them. I mean, Swami sat at the dinner table of his own family, and they were very refined people. And he just casually said something like, I can't imagine if I had all that money just spending it on myself. And his mother, who was very elevated lady, said, well, that's an unusual perspective. <laughs> and it was, Swami said privately later, what other perspective could there be? You know, how could you just spend all that money on yourself? I mean, his father earned substantially. He wasn't a millionaire. But it, 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 at the end, of, or not the end, in the middle of Swami's life when he had earned, literally, he's probably earned millions of dollars in his life, but he never had anything because he spent it all building Ananda. And at one point he, he, needed a, he needed a vacation because he was having such high blood pressure. And his father just couldn't help him, wouldn't help him, just because he was so exasperated with him. He, said, he, he called him Don. Don, you must stop giving away all your money. That's what his father said. And he felt that he would be supporting, enabling his son if he just gave him money when he needed it. Because Don, you must stop giving away all your money. Just totally different, you know. And, and Ray Walters lived a very honorable life and had his money and he, was, and he was generous and all those different things. But he couldn't see that. Swami couldn't see any other alternative. Just to finish that, when his father died and Swami got a substantial inheritance, you've heard Swami say this. He said, my father never gave a dime to build Ananda. He said, I feel that if I just gave all this money to Ananda, my father's soul would be uneasy. He said, and if I don't give it to Ananda, my soul will be uneasy. <laughs> so he built Crystal Hermitage. And that's how it got built. Because he said, it's my house, you know, because he lived there, that was his home in the little apartment. But it's also the community house. So he thought, his father would be satisfied and he would be satisfied. But that's, that's how it happened. But, but, but even, now look at that for a minute. Swami honored his father's attitude. It would have been so easy to say, well, my father was wrong. But he respected him and he realized his father was a very honorable man and had worked very hard all his life and had been very fair. When, uh, in, back in the early 70s, 
uh, Swami's uh, father had, let's see how it worked. He had three sons, and his will, as many fathers would do, if the son predeceases me, then his share of the inheritance will go to the children, his children. But Swami didn't have children and was never going to have children. And sometime in the early 70s, Ray figured that out. And he asked Swami to designate um, three people who would receive his share of the inheritance if he died. And, you know, and, and that was a, a huge step because he realized it wasn't fair and he was willing to support in that, in that way. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? But still, Swami just wouldn't use the money in a way that would have offended his father because they're all my children. You know, it's, it's, I never actually, truthfully, I never actually thought of that business with Swami in this context, which is that you have to help people in the way that is appropriate for them. So Hitler had to be helped in the way that he could be helped. Mussolini had to be helped. Stalin had to be helped. Mother Teresa had to be helped. And Divine Mother does that. Fascinating. All right, any other comments or thoughts? Yes, we have to pass the microphone over. Well, this isn't really anything new because I've read it and I'm sure you all know about it. But Sri Yukteswar said, all people's lives are dark with many shames. So we've all been... The past lives. of Past lives, thank you. Yeah, so we've all been there, and everybody goes forward in a different, uh, in a different way, uh, starting from wherever that was and going up, right? Well, when you also think about it, you know, in the way that Master talks about it, that it's all a play of light and shadow and our individuality is just an illusion. So we see all these, you know, this person doing that and that person seems separate from me. But from the point of view of of, of realization, it, we're not even different. And all of this is just a play of shadow and light. So even the Holocaust and the, the this and the this, when um, the um, Beyond War, that was the name of the group, big, uh, a big anti-nuclear movement came through and I, um, they tried to persuade Swami to put the power of Ananda behind that movement. I mean, who would not? Who, who's in favor of nuclear weapons? You know, raise your hand. But um, their technique was to tell you how har- horrific a, a nuclear holocaust would be. And they had this, all these charts. All of these people will be vaporized, you know, vaporized. These will just be ash. You know, these will die in a day. These will die in a week. You know, just like it was this huge, horrific picture. Very well done. Just absolutely horrible. And all, how many will die? And you know, they did, they did a, a mock bomb on Chicago or something like that that was what it was built on. So Ami's first response was, well, he, you know, he sort of would fold his arms like this. Well, he says, in a hundred years we'll all be in the astral world anyway. Almost no one who's on this planet will still be on it. He said, whether we dribble out over the next century <laughs> or all go out together, he said, once we're in the astral world, and then very emphatically said it won't matter at all. Which is also another thing to think of. Just when the moment, you know, when you separate from this body, it's just gone. I mean, the whole drama, it's, it's just over. And, and everyone, the masters and all of the near-death people, 
just tell you it looks so different than it looks from here. And you feel it so differently. You just realize it was just riding on water. So the intensity with which we experience it on this side, and that's one of the reasons why, if it's just your karma, you just go ahead and live through it, you know? If you just really want to do it, just do it. It's, it's the consciousness you keep while you're acting. It's not your actions. Your actions are more or less compelled by your karma anyway. But your, your choice is how you regard yourself and your experience. And that's, that's what makes it fun because that's the only thing you have control over. Apparently the masters are just pushing left and right on everything anyway and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. I mean, I love these teachings. Look how liberating that is. The fact that it's exceedingly difficult just makes it, uh, 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 means that you'll never get bored. <laughs> you won't just end up at the end and think, what have I done? You know, I mean, I'm later in life than most of you, but not all of you. And I just, I love looking back because, you know, it was a mess back there. But I didn't quit. You know, it's just, I, I worked a lot of it out. It's very gratifying. It's not at all what I was afraid of when I was a teenager. It's exactly the opposite. I was afraid at the end, that at the end of my life I had nothing but ashes in my hand and just 100% different. It's just been absolutely worth every minute and today is just as interesting as the start. I mean, that's really something. One more point and then I'll give up. There was this woman... She was a Stanford student. I was very, I felt a great rapport with her. I really liked her a lot. And I hoped that she would join our path. And she was very skeptical. And she was drawn and she was skeptical. She had a lot of things, she, a lot of desires she wanted to fulfill. And she was really afraid that this would prevent her from doing it. So she asked me if I was happy in the, choice I'd made. And I said, you know, you ask anybody if they're happy, very few people will admit that they're not. <laughs> you know, you just everybody says they are, but is that happiness? You have to look at it. But what I, I thought about it for a moment, and I thought, I said I was a very, very, very idealistic person, and I had a, a passion to make a difference in life. And, you know, this, she, I met her maybe 15 years ago. And I said, I have never had to compromise or lower my ideals. I said, now, I think that's really an accomplishment. And I haven't. I've had, to re, I've had to refine my understanding of what I was doing. But I've never had to compromise. Or, or lessen. I've, actually, I've expanded my ideals as I've gone along. I, then that's the path. That's not me. That's the spiritual path. That's what the spiritual path gives you. It gives you a way to have integrity to have real integrity in your life and to be able to stand at the end of your life and say, I fought the good fight. I really, I kept the faith. I really did it. I mean, that's, think about that. Swami said once, I loved it. The only way to have self-acceptance, he said, is to have a clear conscience. (laughs) He said, you can't have self-acceptance just by saying, I love myself. He said, if you violated Dharma, you'll know it. He said, the only way you can be at peace is to actually be at peace. And you need something more powerful to make that happen. My goodness, she was wired up tonight. Okay. (laughs) This happens sometimes. No caffeine today either. All right. Any comments or questions? 
All right, we did one, number 289. We hinted about Lemuria, but it's not, we didn't really go there yet. Okay.